Morning, Door Creek. Morning. What a beautiful day to be together. Thanks for being here. My name's Mark. If you're a guest, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and uh, we're really glad that you've joined us today. So this last week, we met up with Craig Pixley. Craig is our liaison from World Relief with our partnership over in Rwanda, where, get this, we are partnering with 75 churches, 75 pastors, who right now have on the ground trained 600 people to share the gospel, but also to live out the gospel. And they've been trained in the areas of health and hygiene. There's these microfinance uh, groups that are starting, so we're helping some of these people um, develop businesses, small businesses to support their family. There's child development. There's gonna be some agricultural things that we're gonna be partnering with. But these are some of the guys that we have an opportunity, part of the 30,000 people that we get to impact. We don't see them, we don't think about it, but Craig reminded us that we're, we're part of this. Every day throughout the year through our partnership with World Relief and all that's happening in Nagoma region of Rwanda where there's this church empowerment zone where they reach the needs of the people through the local churches that are spread around that area. So I'm excited to go and see it firsthand coming up in the new year, and we get to pray and to give and to serve. So your faithful generosity is literally changing lives around the world. Thank you. But it, remember, it's also changing the lives of kids and adults and singles and people going to celebrate week in, week out, right here in our own backyard. I got an email from a mom who's a mother of a middle schooler who said, Thanks for your message on insecurity last week. It was so helpful to our young middle school age son. And I just want to encourage you. He like typed up the verses. He's printed them out. And he's got the main points of your message hanging right over his bed. And it's really having an impact. I'm going, are you kidding me? This is awesome to hear. So praise God. A uh, couple weeks ago, there were 20 kids on the north side that met with our student ministries pastor, Greg Doby, who is doing part of STEM. We've now got STEAM, so the A is about the arts, and Greg's like this cool musician. He's teaching these students, there's 20 of them, learning composition, how to write and record their music. And so we're, we're starting to make uh, great inroads with kids and their families, and our goal on the north side is to help them flourish in all the ways that God intended. And so as we're meeting right now, you know there's a loving community that's meeting not just up in DeForest, but on the north side of Madison. And so it's great to be part of this one church that meets in three locations that has literally partnerships around the world. So in light of that, I've been asked to make a quick financial update as we head into the last summer months. So we close out our ministry year and our fiscal year in August, August 31st. So I wanna just give you a heads up where we're at. So um, a couple months ago, we did this message on boundless generosity. We challenged each other to take the tithe challenge, which is a commitment that we as leaders have to give 10% of what God, which is already his, but what he's blessed us with to give it back to his work around the world. And so a bunch of people took that on and it was really noticeable. You saw our giving was strong in March and in April, not so much last month. So here's where we're at. We've got three months to go and we need four months of giving. Does that make sense? So I tutor fifth grade math, so I'm not sure I'm smarter than a fifth grader, but I think I can do fifth grade math. I think that means we need a third more giving in the next three months. So for some of us, we can do more than that. 
And for some of us, we haven't done anything yet. And man, you guys, this is a great way to accelerate your growth in Christ, your trust in him, and to be part of those young guys' lives that we were just looking at. Be part of their lives and all the other lives that we're having an opportunity to impact. Some of you go, man, I'm maxed out. Thank you for giving to the church and trusting God and showing your love for him. So keep the church, this matter, in your prayers as we seek to see more people become devoted followers of Christ. All right. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor David came to me and said, hey, Mark, we're totally missing an important roadblock. I said, well, what's that? Prejudice. I go, whoa, that is awesome. Here's what we can do. The last sermon was supposed to be, message is supposed to be on loneliness. We'll kind of combine loneliness and security. It's kind of working together. And I got a great idea. I said, why don't we do it together? We'll tag team it. We'll tag team it. I'll start, you finish, you start, I'll finish. He didn't know when he asked, you know, gave me that good idea that I might include him. So in his... (laughs) In his own wise way, he said, well, let me, let, let me think about that. He didn't say pray about it. Let me, do, let me think about that. So a couple weeks later, I said, so what do you think? He says, you know what? I think you're supposed to give that message. <laughs> so today we're talking about loneliness. <laughs> and David doesn't know this, but the next time he's preaching, it's on prejudice. <laughs> All right, so to get into the subject, I want to tell you about prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia. Have you heard of it? It's this really strange disease disorder condition where you can't make out the details at different levels of a person's face. It's sometimes called face blindness. Have you heard of that? Face blindness. So you get the outline of a person's face. You might have the ability to see some detail, but in its You know, when it's hardest condition, you don't see any details. Beating, if you didn't hear their voice, you could be seeing your wife or your husband or your child or your parent and not recognize them. For a lot of people, they don't even know they have the condition. They just think they're bad with names and faces. Prosopagnosia, face blindness. Prejudice actually introduces us to a different kind of face blindness. I'm going to suggest it's not just psychological, it's not just social, it's not just something that, you know, in our environment we grow up with, that it's actually a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual blindness where all we can see is the outline of people. We don't know the fine details of their life, but knowing the fine, the outer detail of their life, we can size them up and go, that's who you are, that's who you are, that's who you are. And when we have the spiritual face blindness, what happens is we fail to see people as God actually sees people. And then we fail to serve people as Christ taught us and lived his life of service here where he gave himself away for others. So prejudice, if you look at the definition that Webster gives us, an adverse opinion or leaning form, here's the key, without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge. We don't know anything about this person, but we have sized them up We got the outline and we know, oh, I know who you are because, bop, 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 bop. B, an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual, a group, a race, or their supposed characteristics. Prejudice describes our attitudes and feelings. Discrimination takes the feelings and moves them into action. Three levels of prejudice. There's this cognitive It's what we think 
about people that are different than us or other people. There's the emotional, how we feel about those people. And then there's behavioral, how we treat them. So how do we get here? Well, you know, the sociologists and psychologists are going to give a different way to explain how we got here. We're going to look at biblically, how does the Bible talk about how do we get here? And we got to go back to the beginning like we did last week with insecurity. So we remember at the very good beginning, God created Adam and Eve in his likeness, in his image. He created them. They're to be image bearers as they rule and take care of the world and as they fill it. So they have their identity as they understand who they are because of what God says. You're created in my image. Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor. Ephesians 2.10, in Christ we are masterpieces, right? Creating Christ Jesus to do the good works which he's prepared in advance for us to do. But even before a person becomes a follower of Christ and a child of God, we are created in his likeness. Nothing else in all of creation has that distinct stamp mark on their life, on their being. Image bearer. So remember what happens in chapter three. They stop listening to God's voice. They lose their identity thinking they actually can get a better identity and a better purpose in life by taking the serpent's advice. Eat the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be God who knows the difference between good and evil. And so they do. And when they did, they lost their identity. When they stopped listening to God's voice, they lost their identity. And in crept, and like a tsunami, crept in insecurity. And it just started busting up everything in their relationship with God, the relationship with each other, and the rest of the created world. And when they lost their ability to see themselves for who God says they are, they lost their ability to recognize it in other people. How do we know that? Chapter 4, right after the fall, when they're tempted and they give in to the temptation, doubting God's goodness and disobeying his clear command. We read the story of their two kids, their sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain, in a jealous rage, fails to see the image of God in his brother and has no problem killing him in cold blood. The back half of chapter four is a story of Lamech who boasts in revenge killing and things like this. And he says, you know what? If you think Cain was bad, man, you haven't seen anything. He boasts about his violent revenge. You get to chapter six and it's so bad. It says every inclination of their heart was always bad. It was always evil. And so God raises up righteous Noah who before he's a carpenter, he's a preacher. And he's telling people, you've got to listen to God. Understand who you are and who your brothers and sisters are so you treat each other rightly. No way. They're not listening to God's voice through, through Noah. And so God hits the restart. And after the flood, when Noah and his family comes off the, off the ark, guess what happens? There's the same kind of language that God gave Adam and Eve. I want you to fill the earth. And I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill this earth with my image for my glory. I want you to fill it. And what happens right after that is the people build a city. They don't want to go out in the world. They want to build an image to themselves. It's this big tower to be God and like God. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. And God says, 
This is only going in one direction. You're going to wipe out all of humanity because you think you know what's best, but you're all about yourself and your position to actually destroy each other. So I'm going to bust it all up by sending all these different languages now so the people can't talk to each other, and hence we've got all these different people groups. On the heels of that, we meet a guy in chapter 12 whose name is Abram, who's an idolater from Ur, and God says, right after we read, they wanted to make a name, their name great, God says to Abram, I, I want to make your name great. This is, how, this is how you find your identity. This is how you find greatness in life. Let me do it. So here's what I want you to do. Leave your family. Leave your country, all your relatives, all the comforts of life, and go to the place I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you land. Our ears are ringing, land. Oh, God placed Adam and Eve in a garden. There was land. I'm going to give you blessing. Oh, Adam and Eve had all kinds. Every blessing was at their disposal in the garden of evil, Eden. And then I, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless all the families of the world. So all of a sudden we go, note to self. When God gave the identity to Adam and Eve, he also gave them purpose. And the purpose wasn't just have a lot of kids because it's a big word, earth and you got to take care of the world for me. But it was to fill the earth with my image. And it wasn't just that. It was to fill the earth with my image so that you would bless all who live on this place called the planet earth. And so what happens is when we lose our identity in God, and who we are according to who God says we are. We fail actually to see it in other people. And when we don't see the image of God in other people, but we see the outline, we define them by the outline. Oh, this is who I think they are. Uh, then, then what happens is we are out of position to serve people as God has called us to serve. So it's everybody's deal. It's everybody's deal. You go, well, I, I don't know if it's my deal because maybe you're thinking about racial prejudices. So I, I heard a story the other day about um, two, two people were in a coffee shop and I couldn't help but overhear it because it was that loud. And it's these two people talking about their local school and interactions with the local school and the principal. And it went like, you know, the principal. And then it was the principal is this black woman. She's going great, it's going great. And then after a little bit, she said, and you know, she's really smart. Some of you don't get it. Do you get it? If you don't get it, it's because you're not black or you're not a woman. So the, the inference was, and maybe she didn't mean to do it, but like you didn't just say that out loud in a coffee shop, did you? Like I've never said anything stupid in my life. Hello. <laughs> but I'm thinking, oh, you didn't, you didn't just say that. You didn't just mean that. You weren't just surprised. You weren't surprised, were you? That a black woman could be a principal and that she could be intelligent. You weren't surprised by that, were you? Or I think of my friend who's an African-American pastor, graduate of UW, along with his wife, right here in Madison, whose daughter is a National Merit Scholar as a high school student and gets a great scholarship to go to her parents' alma mater, UW-Madison. So she gets to UW, and the first semester, some of the white girls said, oh, we know how you got in, and had nothing to do with her academic excellence. You go, I'm not, that's not me. Well, let me just tell you what. There is a ton of prejudice that goes on within your own tribes. So, any Brewer fans here? Any Brewer fans here? How many of the Brewer fans love going to a Brewers-Cubs game at Miller Park? I mean, those tickets, up until recently when the Brewers have been thumping, you know, the Cubbies, that you go, I can't take it anymore. What do you mean you can't take it anymore? Chicagoans! 
They are so obnoxious. They actually might look just like you, have the same job as you, live in the same kind of suburb as you, but man, I can't stomach it, or that Viking fan at Lambeau, or that Bear fan, or whatever it is. We have it, and I'll just keep going. I, I remember uh, Lori's grandmother, Agnes, when we met and got engaged, uh, Lori says, hey, I want you to meet Mark, and we're thinking about getting married, and his parents are from Switzerland, and I know you're from Denmark, what do you think, Grandma? Grandma goes, oh, I think the Danes and the Swisses. That'll make a beautiful, that'll make a beautiful marriage. Well, we kind of, that's so sweet. Well, there was a day where it mattered who you married relative to your people or, right, your religious beliefs or whatever it is. And it could get micro cut in some really tight, tight categories along those lines. Uh, my mother, who grew up in Basel, Switzerland, the German-speaking part, um, she had a really thick Swiss-German accent. And in fact, it was so thick that when she first met the women at Winneka Bible Church and she was introducing herself, they thought she said, and she was a hat maker, so the trade is a milliner, they thought she said she's a millionaire from Switzerland. <laughs> wow. Um, so people would ask her, where are you from? She wouldn't just say, I'm from Switzerland. She would say, I'm not German. And it wasn't funny because she lived on the other side of the Rhine River and her brothers were looking at the German soldiers and the lights were out every night and the bombs were coming over and all the crazy Holocaust. She didn't want any identification with those people. Well, let's get it more close to home. When we first moved here, oh, let me talk about my, my neighbor first. So I was talking to my neighbor the other day and he said, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I got a membership on the west side at one of the golf courses. Oh, I said, oh, that's a nice course. I said, so did you used to live on the west side? No, I didn't really live there. I, my friends just called me white trash over here on the east side. I said, oh, well, you know the east side. We're the hardworking, right? Blue collar, right? We get her done stuff kind of people. The west siders are just thinking about getting it done, right? That was a joke. All right. <laughs> so when we first moved here, uh, Lori was, she met a woman and they just started talking about, you know, we came from Wheaton, Illinois, and I don't know, somehow they got this opportunity to talk about some of their experiences. And Lori talked about one of our experiences where we had this wonderful sabbatical at our church back in Wheaton, and we went and lived in my dad's little village. And it was awesome, and the kids went to grandpa's school. And anyways, so she says, where, where do you live? Uh, we, we're in Cottage Grove. Oh, too bad. You'd have fit in really well on the west side. This, guys, it's real. If, if your friend's bumper sticker had Clinton or Trump, what happened here? If you know, oh, they're the, they only listen to CNN or to Fox News, what happens here? If I say I, didn't, I dropped out of high school, I got my GED. Actually, I did a two-year associate's. No, I, I, you know, I, just, I, I got this job, or a UW graduate, or, or, wow, I got an MBA from Harvard. What's going on in our mind? The cars, the clothes, the zip code, all these things. It's the, it's the outlines, and we think we know the person and then, then there's this positive side where we think we're really complimenting people. We go, man, those people, they are such good students and they're so disciplined. Those people, they're so hardworking. I love it when I can hire one of those people. Man, those people are phenomenal athletes. 
And if I gave you a test on those three categories right now, I bet you most of you would put some of the same categories. Oh, I think you were talking about those people. I think you were talking about those people. I think you were talking about those people. You guys, this is like all of us. So just like every town in America seemingly has a main street, this is like we all have this. We all, it's this byproduct of losing our identity in God and failing to see the true identity of other people and just see the outlines of people instead of the true essence of who they are. So let me give you some biblical examples because it's not just these. Uh, it's all through the Bible. So let's just start out kind of towards the beginning. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. These are Moses' sister and brother. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. You go, I don't get it. For he had married a Cushite. I still don't get it. Well, what if I told you Cush is Ethiopia? Oh, so this is a racial thing going on. Oh, yes, it was. Like Moses, couldn't you just found a nice Jewish girl? Why'd you marry an Ethiopian? We're uncomfortable with this. This is racial. Samuel. God says, Samuel, Saul's no longer the king. He's not listening to my voice. He's listening to the people's voice. That's exactly the storyline of Saul. That's how he loses his, he's not ruling under God. He's just doing whatever he wants to do. So he's tuned in and he says, he's no longer my king. I want you to go get, anoint the next king. And it's one of Jesse's sons. So go and anoint him. I'll tell you who it is. So he goes to Jesse's town. He meets Jesse in the town square. He says, I'm coming to your house for dinner, Jesse. So uh, be ready for me. He goes and he has dinner and he looks at his oldest son, Eliab, and he goes, that's got to be the guy. Why did he say that's got to be the guy? Ah, because remember the story of the first king, Saul. Remember they rejected God as their king and they said, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God gave him a king all of the, like all the other nations in outward appearance. It says this of, of Saul. He was head and shoulders taller than all the rest. He looked like a king. Actually, this is an aside. This is free. Do you, have you heard the data about if you're taller, you can make more money? Have you heard that? It's crazy. It's crazy. Like if I was down here somewhere, you, you might not listen to me anymore. You go, what does that little guy have to say to me? So I'm back here. All right. So... He says, this is the guy. God says, this is not the guy. He said, is it this guy? Is it this? And he goes through the whole lineup. He said, no, actually, the guy isn't in the room. He's out in the pastures. He's this ruddy, red-headed, freckle-faced kid tending the sheep. He's a shepherd boy. He's my, co he's my king. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance Face blindness. But the Lord looks where? At the heart. He looks at the heart. You think of the, uh, we think of Nazareth. So Jesus came from Nazareth. That was his hometown. Nazareth little, literally means little stick. So he's from the sticks. He's from Nazareth. And when Nathaniel hears about Jesus being the Messiah coming from Nazareth, you know what he says? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You got to be kidding me. Size it up. You grew up in that town. I know who you are. You, you can't be the, the savior of the world. The um, Samaritan woman at the well. We looked at her last week, John 4. Jesus talking to her. And when the disciples returned, 
and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They don't know. They're speechless. They're like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan half-breed. The blind man in John 9. Ah, the disciples got that one all figured out. All right, Lord, we got this figured out. Somebody messed up big time and sinned big time. Was it him or was it his parents? Oh, no, no, it was neither. It was that God might be glorified. The children, you remember the children who are just to be seen and not heard? Hey, 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 kids, 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 Jesus does not have time with, for you. Jesus, what are you doing? Let the little kids come. Let the little kids come. Let me bless them. The church in Acts chapter 6. So be careful when you, when you hear said or want to say yourself, we just need to get back to the first century church. Like Corinth? Oof. Oh, here's, here's how it's working out in the very first setting. So this is where the first Christians are gathered in Jerusalem and there's growing and it's a diverse church. It's a multi-ethnic church. There are Jewish people and there are Hellenistic Greeks there. And in Acts chapter six, the apostles go, man, we, we have so much needs to attend to. We need to create this, this kind of um, office of deacon, which means servant, to take care of these needs so we can take care of the ministry of the word and prayer. So they appoint these deacons who are supposed to take care of the widows. And guess what happens? All the Jewish widows get taken care of. And all the Greek Hellenistic widows get overlooked. And the people that were part of that group of people say, hey, foul, like what's going on here? Prejudice. It was going on with the first century church because James is going to address it. James chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, he addresses it. This, this letter comes to the Christians who are scattered across the world of that day. And what James writes is kind of this hypothetical that is meant to be a stinging rebuke for what was obviously going on. A prejudice that led to discriminatory practices within the church between the rich and the poor. So James is towards the very end, right after Hebrews, right before 1 Peter. He used the table of contents. You ready? Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man, so suppose, suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing a golden ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this is the prejudicial thinking and maybe feeling moving into action. Listen, verse 5, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Here's an example. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. 
The whole thing holds together, he's saying. So verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It matters to God how we treat other people. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he says, all right. A guy in a Brooks Brothers suit comes in. We'll call him Brooks. And you say, Brooks, front row. I want you to make sure that you get that offering basket first. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Okay, Brooks, you're right there. The, the guy with the old clothes, you maybe didn't even notice it, but if you get within 20 feet, you might have smelled them. And you go, oh, wow. Wow. This guy's his life is a mess. He's a hot mess. Let's put him over there. Or, you know what, if we give him a seat, let's let him sit on the floor because that's how we feel. He's below us. He's below us. He says, that is just evil thinking. That is sin. You are not seeing this person for who he is. That person is actually chosen by me. They are loved by me as they put their faith in me. And they are my child and they're your brother. And you are breaking the royal commandment, which is to love your neighbor, which isn't just your Christian neighbor, as yourself. And you better understand that if you are not doling out the mercy that God's given to you, you will not receive mercy. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we're not operating in mercy when we receive, when we refuse to see all people created in whose image? God's image. God's image. In Proverbs, we read this in Proverbs 14, verse 21. It's a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who's kind to the needy. But you know what? There's a positive example in the New Testament, and it's a beautiful one. And when we first read it, we don't actually see it. We don't get it. Acts 13.1. Now in the church at Antioch. So Antioch is the place where people were first called Christians, which literally means little Christs. Just like Christ. What a beautiful term. That is not the same kind of a thing today, is it? So now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So these, are, these are the leaders of the church. Barnabas, well, we've heard about that guy, right? The son of encouragement, literally is what his name means. Simeon, called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. You get it? Like, what? What? Okay, so let me tell you who these guys are. These five guys. Barnabas is from Cyprus. And he's a Levite. So he's from the priestly line. He's of Jewish descent. Simeon, a black man, is very likely from Niger, from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is modern-day Libya. Menaean is an aristocrat, right? He's raised in Herod's household. Saul, Paul, from Tarsus, is this well-educated Pharisee. What you have is this beautiful blend of different leaders who love Christ and have been called together by Christ, recognized by the church to be the leaders of this church who would be the the first church that is not only made up of diverse leadership, but it's of diverse people who have a heart, not surprisingly for those different kinds of people all around the known world who don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so what do they do? They commission Paul 
and Barnabas to be the first missionaries. And guys, we go back. Our own spiritual journey goes back to that church with multi-ethnic, diverse, socioeconomic, racial, all the different kinds of ways you can slice it. You've got that church sending out their very best to go reach the world for Christ. So it's an obstacle. It's a huge roadblock. It disconnects us from the heart of God. And so when we're not connected to his heart, we're not, we're not seeing people as we ought. So it's, it's messing up our vision. Can't see. And then it's disconnecting and disengaging us from the work of God, where he's called us to fill the earth and bring blessing to all the families, not just the ones that look like you, all the families of the world. And what happens is we don't even recognize it. Like I said, there are people that have face blindness that don't know they have it. They just think, I'm not really good at names and faces. Well, you actually might have prosopagnosia. Why would that be? Well, Jeremiah says this about our own hearts. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So it's a tricky thing to know your own heart. But then there's another thing where Jesus tells us that the enemy is a thief who steals, kills, and destroys. Peter says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here's what Paul says about the enemy in 2 Corinthians 11:14. 14. He disguises himself. He masquerades as an angel of light. So it's easy for us to go, I know it's an issue. And there's all kinds of racial tensions around the world and in our own backyard. But trust me, it's, I, it's not, not me, not me. He's blinded us to see it and more importantly, to see it in ourselves. And so he uses fear and lies to keep us apart. He tempts us again to determine our own good And out of that, insecurity, out of this whole idea of trying to find myself apart from God, I realize that I feel a lot more comfortable hanging out with people that are a lot like me. And that's not necessarily racial, but it's not less than that. It could have to do with educational status. It could have to do with socioeconomic status. It could have to do with marital status. It could have to do with political ideologies and commitments. You see what I'm saying? And so Jesus prays about this very thing because he knows the power of sin to divide us, not just from God, but from each other and to have us function in these tribal kinds of clans where we are just really nervous about the others out there. And he prays for this profound unity for his church, for us. He prayed for Door Creek, you guys, when he prayed this prayer. And I'll tell you how. My prayer, and this is John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them, that's us and the disciples before us, may be one. What kind of oneness and unity is he talking about? Not uniformity, no. But this beautiful 
unity that's made up even of like the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our failure here in this roadblock just just disengages us from the joy of being used by God to have people from all different backgrounds blessed by God. And so this is a huge, huge roadblock and has everything to do with our vision as a church. So here's what we say. By God's grace, we desire to be a Christ-centered church for all, how does it go? Oh, there you go, for all people. A Christ-centered church for all people where the power of the gospel is continually transforming lives, renewing our city, and changing the world. And 10 years ago, the leadership board, godly women and men of this church, went on a year study of just trying to get our, our minds and hearts around the all people, for all people. And we chased that, God, for all peopleness, and especially kept an eye on the least of these, the marginalized, so the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the stranger in the land. Sometimes translated the alien, or in our, in our parlance, an immigrant, okay, a refugee. And so we went on this year study, and it was so cool. So one, one board meeting, we just looked at all the passages in the Torah, the first five books. Then we did the, the nine books of history. Then we did the five books of wisdom literature. Then we did the 17 books of the prophets. And then we did the gospels. And then we did the book of Acts. And then we did all the letters. And then we did the book of Revelation. And then out of that, we preached a whole series called For All, a biblical basis for becoming a church for all people. It's still online. You can listen to those. Fall of 2010. Most of us weren't around. Those of you that were, you're going, did we? Yeah, we did. All right, so let me, as, as I kind of wrap it up and turn the corner, let me just go back to the biblical truths that we found in God's word that guides us as we desire to be a Christ-centered church for all people. And that means however you could slice and dice people in this world, that we want to be a Christ-centered church for all people. The first thing that we noted, and we've already talked about it, especially the last two weeks, is becoming a church for all people is rooted in creation. We're created in the image of God. There isn't anybody that we'd see who isn't created in the image of God. Crowned, soulmate, with glory and honor. Second, becoming a church for all people is made harder because sin, our sin, separates. The power to, to divide us is, is a sin. If it's in our life, it's in a church, it's in their call, wherever it is. And here's what we found out. The, the power that is strong enough to divide a nation is small enough to actually reside in my heart and do a ton of damage if I let that grow in my heart. So sin by its nature separates us from God and from each other. Third, becoming a church for all people reflects the heart of God. One of the things that I was struck with as we studied the law is God doesn't say, hey, you guys, treat them equally because that's fair. Everybody's created in my image, so treat them equally. Actually, the law shows that God gives preferential treatment to the least of these, knowing that they don't start from zero. They're like way behind. That's how they are. You sit at my feet. You don't deserve. You don't deserve. It's, it's almost like this crab mentality. Have you, have you heard about the crab mentality? This is bizarre. Have you heard about it? So you put a crab in a bucket, 
and they'll crawl out of the bucket. You put a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one starts crawling out of the bucket, guess what happens? Yeah, they won't let them crawl out of the bucket. They'll pull them back down, pull them back down. It's almost like God knows that now that we're messed up and broken, and don't listen to his voice. Don't have our identity grounded in him. Don't understand who people are in our mission in this world. We actually will do that. We just pull each other down. You don't deserve, no, 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 no. He gives preferential treatment so that in all the laws that dealt with everyday life, whether it was how they harvested their crops, you better leave it on the edge. And if you drop some of the, of the wheat that you're bringing back to the, to the barn, you leave it there so that they can gather it, the poor can gather it. The windfall goes to the poor. And all these things, if you, if you can't bring an offering that's a lamb, well, then I'm going to give you a, a, a less expensive one. I mean, it was just all through the law. God's heart. It's all about God's heart. Becoming a... A church for all people is at the heart of the gospel, right? Good news. Fear not, the angel says. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for, how does it go? All people, all people. Of a God who loves all people, of a Savior who died for all people, to bring us back to himself. Next, becoming a church for all people was Christ's command, is Christ's command. Church, go and make disciples of your own people. Because it's a lot easier if you just reach your own people. That's what Jesus said, right? Right? Oh, no, he didn't. What did he say? Go make disciples of all what? Nations. Of all people groups. This is the command of Christ. And this is the goal of the gospel. This is where history is heading. This is the picture of the church in heaven made up of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language who are worshiping Christ and crying out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so here's what I said to our church nine years ago. On the basis of God's word, let's lock arms and let's head uphill, understanding that it's uphill all the way. And so I reflect back and go, how have we done? How have we done? So one of the ways we can measure it is through our survey. So I remember when I came here, uh, Door Creek was 98% white. So it's like, it's just one of the ways. It's not the way, but it's one of the ways. So we just did a survey, right? So we're 92.5. So we're slow. It's like, really? Like, can we get in the 80s? It's hard. This is our life work. I want you to have an experience of the richness of God's family that exists today, not just in heaven. It's not just what's in heaven. They're like in the Goma. There's 75 churches that are brothers and sisters. They might not even have a building. I don't know. I haven't seen it all. A lot of the churches in Africa meet under a big tree. There are brothers and sisters. There are people all over the world that are so different than us, but we have the same Savior. We're worshiping the same King. We love Christ. And all I know is it's hard because it's easier to just hang out with your own. It's hard, but it's far richer. It's far richer to experience the diversity of the, of the world that God loves and the world that loves God. So, link arms, uphill, recognizing this. There are things in my heart and yours as well as in our church, God help us, that actually is going to make it harder than easier for people to meet Christ. I'm not sure you heard me say that. It's uphill, it's arms locked together and we've got to recognize that there's attitudes, there's feelings, there's activity that we're blind to, that we don't know, that are actually going to make it harder 
for people to trust and follow Jesus. God help us. So we're on a journey, and it's a great journey. A lot of people go, man, I, I just want to find God's will. This is God's will. This is what he's doing in this world. This is, you can sum up all of human history in this. God redeeming a people to himself for his own glory through Christ, his own son. That we would bring his blessing to all the families of the world. We get to be a part of it as his kids. And, and the part of it is, isn't it great to be God's children? That is awesome. And isn't it great to make an eternal difference in somebody else's lives? God, help us to that end, we pray. Join me. Lord Jesus, we love that you met all people in that way. Whether they were a Samaritan woman, a dirty little child, a cheating tax collector, a hypocritical religious leader, a Roman oppressor, a failed flopping disciple. And we, we just say we, we don't often have your eyes and we don't have your love. And so we just confess that and we pray that you would give us your spirit in a fuller measure and that the fullness would go right up into our minds and into our eyes so that even this week we're seeing people differently. And not just seeing them, but we're serving them, loving them, caring about them, giving our lives away as you did for us, Lord Jesus. Lord, thanks for making us new in you, masterpieces. And now help us to walk in this new life, to do the good things that you've prepared in advance for us to do it. May we sense your smile and may you give us great joy when we walk in the steps of a humility that brings happiness to our life rather than pride that just brings loneliness and isolation and, and all the other garbage of that, Lord. Make us more like you, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.